Welcome to I'd Rather Stay In with Megan Myers and Steffi Predmore. Happy New Year! Today we're talking with author Lauren J. Sharkey. Stay tuned. Hello, Megan! Hello, Steffi. Back at it again. I know. Happy New Year. I know that, I mean, Happy we've seen New each Year. other since it was Yeah, like six hours ago, but <laughs> it's fine. Uh, yeah, we live at each other's houses. It's fine. But, you know, Happy New Year in podcast land. Uh, yeah, it does feel like a really long time since we've recorded. Uh, I mean, technically it has been. It's been a month, more than a month. A month or so, yeah. More than a month? Uh, I don't even know. It's been a while. I mean, we had all the holidays, so. We did have the holidays. Um, how were how were yes. your holidays, Megan? Uh, it was good. We had, um, you know, we had school canceled right before break, so the kids got one extra day of school off, and then it felt like they were here forever because of <laughs> that. I don't know if it's simply because of that extra day, but it just felt real long. Um, yeah. But we got to see most of our family, uh, so that was nice. Yeah, I mean, Edie definitely, like, it, we, because Edie's daycare is open, like, during, like, the holidays, except for, obviously, like, Christmas or day after, in this case, because it was on a Sunday, and then New Year's mm-hmm. and stuff like that, um, but, and they were closed, they were also closed, like, the Friday before because of the winter storm and stuff, uh, but even still, even with her going during the week, there were still days where I was like, um... Okay, you've been home for four days, and we can't go outside because it's gross, so uh, now I'm tired of entertaining a toddler. <laughs> it's fine. Even with her new toys, I was like, I'm, just, just, I'm tired. Please go back to school. It's fine. They just have a lot of desires, you know? Yeah, they just need... To needs. be fed so many meals a day, constantly, so like, much, so much move food, it's constant snacks, constant like, and then I, and then you also have to like feed yourself. It's just like there's just a lot of feeding people as an adult <laughs> that I just was not expecting, and I I should have been because I heard my mother bitch about planning out meals, like planning out dinners most of my life, but. I still was not prepared for how much of your adult life is just taken up by feeding yourself and other people. It's, it's mostly annoying because of the all the times where I'm just like, you know what? I would rather just like eat a bowl of popcorn. Literally. And that, that is frowned upon for <laughs> other people. Yeah. Luckily, my kid is still young enough that like... I can get away with like kind of feeding her kind of a snacky dinner and then we Alex and I can kind of fend for ourselves but I know that there will reach a point where she's going to be old enough that she's like I need a real dinner and I'm going to be like I I don't know what to tell you popcorn sounds great yeah have a bowl of cereal I don't know what to tell you totally (laughs) balanced it's fine honest to god that is why uh, her daycare is worth every penny that we spend because they do feed her a great breakfast and a great lunch, and then she has her afternoon snack. And those are meals that I then don't have to think about. Because exactly. I do, I see, like, my friends, like, even, you know, their kids in preschool and daycare, and they're, like, packing their lunches already. I'm like, oh, hell no. I <laughs> do not want to have to pack a lunch until she is actually in, like, big kid school. No fucking thank you. So. Once school, when... Uh, when they started doing free meals at the schools, I think they started doing it. They were doing it when we were in Texas. Um, like they just had the funds for it, and then they were uh-huh. doing it during, like all the COVID stuff. And I was like, thank God, because I don't right. want to have to make a lunch. They also they get so tired of make of like the stuff you put in their lunch, right? Because you either have to be like super creative, and then they don't want to eat it. Or you give them the same thing every day, and then they don't want to eat it because it's the same thing, and it's just like not a good winning solution. So, I'm not that free school lunch all the way. I, <laughs> I really, I mean, I genuinely admire the moms that can do the cute ass little bento boxes and like come up with the creative lunches every day. I genuinely admire that because I, that is not me. I am not that mom. I can do that for, like, a week. But, like, the problem is, like, they don't want to eat it. Like, they'll do it for... <laughs> the kids will generally do it for a little while, and they'll be like, okay. And then they'll be like, I don't... I want a sandwich. 
<laughs> like, this is, I mean, that's, yeah, it's just, that's like just the, the kind of mom I am. I, I also, I was texting Eden's aunt just a little bit ago and was saying like, you know, hey, you know, we're going to celebrate her birthday because her birthday's coming up. We're going to celebrate her birthday like this on this day. Like if you want to come down, you're totally welcome. I have nothing planned because that's who I am. Like I will probably get frozen pizzas again and I don't know, maybe some Lion King paper plates. Who knows? Like that's just, I'm just not, I'm not that mom. I really admire those moms, but it ain't me. So, you know, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. It's great. We do what we can. We all have our special skills. We do all have our special skills. Uh, one of our special skills is buying a lot of books. Uh, I'm uh, really good at that. We're really good at that. I, I bought, after Christmas, I bought eight books when I am currently reading two. Uh, so it's, it's fine. It's fine. And, I have in addition huge... to the ones that I also already had. Well, yeah, I have a huge TBR stack and then of like yeah. books that I own. And then I, yes. I just got three three from the library yesterday so it's just a never ending, yeah uh, a never ending cycle I, here i possibly have all of my tbrs like next to my bed stacked up now i switched out the ones that i have already read and put them away and i don't know if i got all the ones that i haven't read off my bookshelf or not but now i just have a really tall tall stack so clearly if you know us we love books so today we are pulling back the curtain on the process of writing and publishing a novel with friend and author of the novel Inconvenient Daughter, Lauren J. Sharkey. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for being here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes. So my name is Lauren and I am a Korean adoptee and writer currently based in Philadelphia, but originally from Long Island. Um, and that's really all there is to me. I recently got married in May and um, I am working on a second book. <laughs> uh, so... Let's start with sort of the beginning here for you. When did your love of writing begin? I feel like I've always been a writer and I don't mean that in like the douchey kind of way where it's like I've always been a wordsmith. Um, I think as um, when I was younger, writing was a way for me to sort of process what happened to me. I always used to keep a journal and um, I was really into journals. Every time I went to Barnes and Noble, I would make my mom buy me one until I was able to use my babysitting money to buy them myself. And um, I would journal almost every day. And especially when I got into my teenage years and started talking to boys, I would try to recall the actual conversations I had with them and like replicate them in my journal so I could then go back to them and analyze them, which now I um, <laughs> makes me I sound <laughs> like a serial killer, but that's totally what well, I did. As a fellow anxious person, I 100% appreciate that. <laughs> For real though, like... I remember before social media, my major activity was analyzing texts dudes would send me with other friends and being like, okay, so you'll see in excerpt one, he used the smiley face emoji, yet <laughs> in section two, he actually used the colon and parentheses. So does that mean he has less feelings than he did in section one? <laughs> I kind of love this, and I would read a book that is just this. <laughs> that was literally my life for longer than I care to admit. So when did you I first that. realize that you wanted to uh, write and publish a whole actual book someday? What Me made too. you want to write a novel instead of another genre? So I actually started out as a creative nonfiction writer, and when I started looking at graduate schools well let me rewind i was working a nine to five and i woke up one morning and i was like if i have to do this 
every day for the next 30 or so years, the next 30 or so years are really going to suck. Um, my parents instilled in me that it was really important to have like a 401k and health insurance and a reliable job. And if you like the arts, reliable isn't really always synonymous with, um, you know, that kind of right. stuff. So I tried the nine to five thing and I was really unhappy. And then I decided to go to graduate school for writing. And when I got accepted, I really thought that my memoir was going to be um, kind of like a sex in the city with more F-bombs. <laughs> and then as I started writing it, I remember my thesis advisor going like, well, what's the common denominator with all of these relationships? Why do they all end? And it's like, did I just pay a bunch of money to have someone <laughs> ask me why I'm still single? Like, <laughs> is that what's happening here? And then that is when, <laughs> yeah, I was like, shots fired, man. <laughs> and the more I started, I actually went back to my journals and did some soul searching and realized that I had a lot of unresolved trauma surrounding my adoption. And then the story slowly morphed into how relationships and adoption present in my life. But in order to write the story that I wanted to tell, I had to sort of take myself out of it and forge a new character that could not necessarily borrow from my experience, but who could use my experience to maybe speak to things that I hadn't really figured out yet. And that's how I became a fiction writer. Do you think... So... Because uh, I, I also am a writer but have not published a, a book yet but I have a lot of ideas and I always think that like when some of the ideas that I want to put in my book might be too close to home did you feel that way when you were writing it was really heavy so my normal routine would be I would wake up at 4 a.m write until 6 a.m go to work and then go to class and then come back and I found that the deeper I dug into the emotions I was feeling regarding my adoption were really heavy to carry with me the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. So I had to sort of switch up my routine to writing at night, which was really difficult for me because I had been on this routine for so long. But I think that it's really important to practice self-care when you are writing about things that are very close to home or things that are really raw. And, you know, writing about subjects that are kind of open wounds that you're currently carrying. And maybe sometimes you don't even know those wounds are open. Sometimes you find that out like kind of late when you're going grocery shopping and then you're crying over raisins. Um, <laughs> But it does happen. It does happen. Yeah, you know, I mean, that honestly sounds a lot like what happens after going to a therapy session, right? Where you like you go to therapy and you kind of work through things. It's just like instead of talking things out with your therapist, you are working them out on paper. Um, and yeah, because I know like there's a lot of times where like, you know, sometimes I go to therapy and I leave and I'm like, oh, I feel pretty good. And I can like go about the rest of my day like fairly normally. And then there's times where I leave therapy and I'm like, I need to just go to bed now. Thank you very much. So, I mean, that's that's what that reminds me of as you're as you're talking about that, that process. Yeah, for sure. And like, I think when we think of writers or writing we think of a really solitary activity. It's something that you do by yourself, but writers need community in order to survive. You need other writers reading your work, giving you feedback on that work, but you also need a community of people who are encouraging you, who are supporting you, and who are calling you out when you're not supporting yourself by taking care of yourself and you know, giving yourself kind of the love and support you need from just being your own person. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, so, you know, obviously, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about like your schedule and, you know, your, your day to day schedule, um, in terms of what that looks like when you were writing the book. Um, but can you sort of outline your greater writing process for Inconvenient Daughter and even now for the second book that you're working on? So kind of a bummer, but I actually don't have a process. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's okay. If there is a process and someone knows what it is, if they could email me, I I would be open to hearing it. Um, Inconvenient Daughter, one of the major complaints that I received from Inconvenient Daughter was the timeline. (laughs) I had so many people reach out to me saying I couldn't follow the book. The timeline is all over the place. I like stories. Someone actually wrote to me and said, like, I prefer stories that are linear. I just couldn't follow this. That this book is for you. So for for the listeners, um, An Inconvenient Daughter, like it jumps back and forth between like, where the main character Rowan, it, like what is happening to her right now, and so you'll get like little glimpses of what's happening to her right now, and then it jumps back into like telling the story of sort of her life and how she got to where she is right now at the moment, and it's pretty clear from the jump that it's not going to be a linear timeline. So maybe they should just have said like, never mind, I don't think this is the book for me. Like, I don't know, as a person that doesn't. Like chocolate, I don't eat a chocolate donut and then go like, that donut was gross. I prefer things that don't have chocolate in them. Like, I just don't eat the chocolate donut. I don't know. Man, people are weird. People are definitely weird. But then again, I'm people, so I'm weird too. (laughs) Um, But I really, um, I don't have a process with Inconvenient Daughter I drew a lot from moments that had a huge impact on me growing up. So finding out that I was adopted, my first major breakup, um, you know, other firsts in my life and sort of backtracked how those impacted me and how they shaped my future. With the book I'm working on now, I've actually had to do a ton of research. So I've been conducting interviews Um, speaking to a lot of people I would never speak to in my normal day-to-day life and sort of taking those interviews and what I've learned from other research into other countries and sort of shaping a narrative around that. Do you work with an outline or is it kind of just like flow? So on my wall in my um, second bedroom slash office, it is covered in that whiteboard contact paper. And there are three timelines on it for all three of the characters that I'm studying, that I'm writing about. Oh, you have a serial killer wall. Yeah, which has <laughs> evolved into six, six timelines now. And yeah, my Google wow. search history isn't great. I've definitely Googled... <laughs> how to join the yakuza is it possible to is it possible to die from blunt force head trauma and have there be no blood um how does one become an assassin you know like it would be extremely incriminating to um have my google search history read in court Oh my god, I love that. Yeah, your FBI agent is feeling real suspicious right now. But I don't necessarily work with an outline. For my first book, Inconvenient Daughter, what I really had was a question. And the question was, what book have I read that reflects my journey? And there was none that I really felt close to or identified with. So I then asked myself, well, what is my story? What is my journey? What does that look like? And how do I translate that into something that other people might recognize and relate to also? Um, With my second book, I sort of took inspiration from Stephen King. And in his book on writing, he talks about how he came up with the idea for Carrie. 
And I don't remember the exact verbiage, but it goes something like, I wondered what would happen if a girl got her period in a locker room in front of other girls and how that would go. And the question that I asked myself was, what would happen if I found relatives and went on like blood relatives that I hadn't known previously and what happened, what would happen if I met them and what would happen if we got into an amazing and strange adventure? Your question is much better than Stephen King's question, which is I mean, real, real. Cr- cringy. <laughs> no contest. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, definitely cringe, but also he threw the idea away and his wife was actually the one who convinced him to keep going with the story. That's wild. Okay. Megan's like, okay, fine, I'll I'll allow it, Stephen King. I'm just like, why is a man writing about menstruating? What is happening? (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. It's definitely weird. You know, I mean, I know, like, when I asked the question, you said, like, oh, well, this is a bummer because I don't have a process. But I mean, I feel like you do. Yeah, I I do. I feel like you do. And also, I think that this just demonstrates, like, a lot of what your process is going to look like. Like, if you are a writer, it's going to depend on the book that you're writing, that you can be the same writer. And depending on what you're writing, your process might look a little different. And it doesn't have to look one specific way. Because I think that, you know, I I don't know. I, I... so often I feel like you you read interviews or something with a famous author and they're like, yes, and I always sit down and I do this and this and this and this. And you're like, is that the way that you're like, is this how you're supposed to write a book? Like, I don't know. That process doesn't speak to me. Um, so I don't know. I like hearing that yours is a little all over the place depending on what you're doing. Like it's dependent on what you're writing. For sure. And like every couple of years, not even every couple of years, every couple of weeks, there's like an interview with a commercially successful writer who's like, well, I awake in my king size bed with my eco-friendly sheets and I go down (laughs) to my French press and I have my artisanal coffee and I stare out into space for two hours and then I write all day every day. And it's like, Dude, who has time for that? I got stuff to do. I got bills to pay. Like, I got food that I need to make. Like, and... Right, like, I can't afford to just go live in a cabin in the woods. Yeah. And actually work while you write, right? And I think yeah. it's really discouraging because it sends a message, whether intentionally or unintentionally, it sends a message to other writers that this is the way you do things. And then you get discouraged and you're like, well, that's not how I can do things. Or maybe I'm not able to do things in that same way. Maybe I should just give up. But everyone's writing process is unique and valid. Um, If you don't write every day, you're still a writer. If you write and you never publish it, you are still a writer. And I think that's really important for people to understand is that you have to define what success means to you if success is that you write a hundred words a day and or if success is you sell a new york times best-selling novel you know every step you take has to be in pursuit of what is going to make you personally happy not by whatever rubric you think is out there for writers as a collective yeah absolutely Amen. You wrote the book, I assume, with the intention of hoping to find a publisher. So can you explain what the process was like of finding a publisher? Did you find an agent first? Did you finish the novel first? What? How did that look for you? So there are so many different paths to publishing today, much more than there were even a few years ago. I went with an independent press. So typically when we think of publishing, we think of the top five publishers, which is Penguin Random House, Hachette, Macmillan. Oh my God, I can't think of the other two. That's really embarrassing. HarperCollins. Yes, HarperCollins. Right now. Um, and usually these established houses have A, connections, B, resources, and C, funding. Um, so 
I think a lot of people lie under the misapprehension that if you don't get published by the big five or that if you can't access the big five, that your story or your book is not worthy. And that is not true. There are now what they call independent presses or small presses that maybe have less resources, less staff, and less funding, but who take more of a chance on first-time authors or authors who maybe have something different to say or say what they want to say in a much different slash unconventional, in air quotes, kind of way. Um, so I was published by an independent press, Akashic Books, and their imprint, Kaylee Jones Books. And um, I did not have an agent. That is another benefit of going with an independent or a small press is that they typically take or accept what's known as unsolicited manuscripts or unsolicited submissions, which means you don't have to be represented by an agent in order to submit for consideration. Um, and yeah, that's how it went. I did not sell through my advance, which was very modest. Um, and I did not sell through my first printing, which many first time authors do not. But I was very fortunate to have the support of an amazing community and have the support of so many of my writing colleagues in addition to adoptees that I met online and connected through through the online adoption space who reached out to me and told me how much Inconvenient Daughter meant to them and that is the greatest success I ever could have hoped for. Ah, warm feels, warm fuzzies. Um, so then, you know, you're working with this publisher and, you know, now you have to get the book out into the world. You have to birth this book, baby. What does that look like? Or, you know, obviously, and obviously it's going to look different for everyone, especially depending on if you're, you know, working with an indie press versus, you know, one of the big five. But for you, what was that like to get the book into the world to where you were holding a physical copy of your first book? So across the board, um, a lot of staff has been cut in terms of the publishing industry. And no matter where you go, whether it's the big five or an indie press, a lot of the onus of the book's success lies with the author. So you have to be your biggest hype man, your biggest marketer, and the most annoying person on social media begging people to buy your book, to read that book, and to then leave a review for that book. Um, for me personally, I actually didn't realize who the audience for Inconvenient Daughter was until after it was published. I actually only found the online adoption community after Inconvenient Daughter had been published, and I sort of stumbled onto it by accident. And it's interesting because in adoption terminology, there's a phrase called in the fog where you... I don't even know because for me, in the fog means that I wasn't fully aware of the impact that adoption had on my life. And I actually wrote Inconvenient Daughter while I was in the fog. And it wasn't until after Inconvenient Daughter that I felt like I was starting to emerge from the fog. So my second book is actually the first piece of writing that I've written not in the fog or not as much as in the fog as I used to be. So that'll be interesting if it makes it out into the world. I have a, I have a tangential question here that is not totally related to anything we actually had written on paper, but uh, I, you know, let's say that Inconvenient Daughter was made into a movie. Do you have a fan cast for that? And can you tell us what your fan cast is? <laughs> so um to play Rowan I would like I'm probably gonna butcher her last name but it's Stephanie Sue Sue she played oh, yes. um Michelle Yeoh's daughter and everything everywhere all at once oh yes yeah yes. I would I like Adam Driver to play oh my god I forgot what name I gave to my ex in the book <laughs> 
Well, I would love Adam Driver. So if we could get him on the phone, that'd be great. Um, Will Arnett would be great as my dad in the book. And I think, who is the girl that plays Wanda in WandaVision? I think she would be great as my mom. So that's Um, some of the cast that I would like. Love that. Amazing. Like a young version of your mom. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Love it. Amazing. That's just... Yeah, I love Stephanie. She would be amazing. <gasps> she would be so good. Let's get her on the phone and make it happen, people. <laughs> we both. I'm sure she's so not Megan busy I... at all. <laughs> right, I know. Megan and I both watched everywhere, everything everywhere all at once. And I think we both were like, I either understood this perfectly or not at all. <laughs> and I probably have to rewatch it to figure it out. Watching that mother-daughter relationship amazing. cut so it's deep. Amazing. I was like, I was not emotionally prepared for what this movie was going to be. <laughs> oh. And then you like, oh, but and then like they also throw in like hot dog hands. And you're like, what just happened? It was so it's excellent. A, so excellent. It was, and it was so like beautifully shot. They only, so my husband and I watch um, VFX artists react. Um, I forget, Uh that's not the name of the show or the YouTube channel. I forget what it's called. I'll have to find out from him. But it's a bunch of visual effects artists who react to different scenes. Like they'll have a theme one week and they actually sat down with the people, the designers and the VFX artists who did everything everywhere and I think there were only like six of them who actually worked oh, on the movie, which you would never know from the way it looks. No. And the scenes no. where Michelle Yeoh is transitioning between timelines and selves, they actually shot, if I remember correctly, on a cell phone. One of Stop. the artists was walking through the city and he recorded the footage of him walking and then they sped it up and that's how they got some of the transition scenes and i was like that is so amazing holy crap that is mind-boggling i'm gonna have to deep dive into that later that's incredible you talked about promotion and how how writers basically have to be their biggest marketers which is so kind of funny and contradictory to me because (laughs) I think generally writers like we're not that kind of person that can be that promotional like big person who like look at me look at me like we will read our books but don't look at us um so did you feel like that was difficult it was really hard because it felt so much like desperation but really you are desperate um (laughs) which is terrible but you know you work so hard for something and then it goes out into the world and you think all the people who have been cheering you on are going to be behind you and then you realize you look behind you and not as many people are there um It is really hard to say, please read my book because what you really mean, well, not what you really mean, but in order to read the book, they have to purchase the book. So basically Mm -hmm. you're asking people to spend money and um, it's an awkward thing, you know, and it's hard. Pre-orders are really important, right? Yeah, and it's hard to convince people who don't know you that they should read the thing that you've been working on for however many years. It's hard to sort of, and that's why reviews are so important because that's what really brings people in. I know I've definitely picked up books based on reviews that other people have left. So those are really important. And supporting your local independent bookstore is also extremely important. Do not buy books off Amazon if you can help it. They have destroyed the publishing and independent bookseller industries. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> for more on that, please visit our episode with Liz from Bob's Bay. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> we, our, we, we interviewed the owner of our local indie bookstore uh, at the end of last year. 
um, because we are also obsessed with our independent bookstores. Uh, can you, before we kind of move on to some of the, these, these last questions that we had, can you just talk about what it was like to hold your book physically, like a bound copy of your book in your hands for the first time? It was really weird because, um, (laughs) because I guess it was always when I first got the publishing contract, my brother was getting married and I found out in April that the book was actually going to become a book and he got married in June and I didn't want to take away from his wedding day. So I sat on the news for like two months and didn't tell a soul, (laughs) but it had been the cornerstone of my whole life, but I didn't tell anyone for two months. And then when I finally told people it was getting published two years <laughs> from that day, they were like, oh, that's great. But two years is such a long time. And then I was planning my launch party and COVID happened. And then I realized that I was not going to actually get to stand in a bookstore and hold my book, um, which was, it was really hard. I definitely mourned, but. And you should have, that's valid. Yeah. On publication day, I actually drove to the independent bookstore, White Whale, which is in Pittsburgh, which is where I lived at the time. And I got to the door and I could see my book in, in the door, like through the door. And I was like, holy shit it happened. (laughs) It's real. (laughs) And I actually got to sign a few copies there. They were super nice to me. If you're ever in Pittsburgh, please go visit there because they're amazing. But, um, I got to sign a few and it still feels kind of surreal. Like it didn't happen, you know? Um, but I think it's proof that dreams can come true. You know, we, I'm always, worried about being one of those people that's like toxically positive that's like if you can dream it do it you know (laughs) but like it happened to me I had a dream and I it it happened it became not a dream it became a reality and if it can happen to me someone who has not worn two matching socks in I don't know how long and who is currently wearing my sweatshirt inside out because no one is going to see me today. And like one side of my hair is definitely flat and the other is sticking up because I haven't showered yet today. Um, If it can happen for me, it can happen for anyone. So I guess like keep writing, keep dreaming and keep going because you'll get to somewhere, you know, it may not be where you had originally thought you'd be or where you wanted to be, but you will get where you need to be. And I really believe that. Amazing. You know what question I just thought of um, before we close out? I've always been curious about this. The cover art. Did you get a say in what the cover looked like? Yes. Um, I worked with this amazing designer, Caitlin Martin. And when we first started conceptualizing the book, I thought of sort of like an abstract background, like cherry blossoms. And we went through several drafts and I felt like I was like, you know, it doesn't really feel like what the book is about, even though I wanted the flowers when I saw them. I was like, this isn't it. And then she came up with this great drawing of just the silhouette of the Catholic school girl outfit with the pigtails and then the girl in the handbox silhouette behind it. And I was like, that's it. That's the book cover. And then after she gave me that sketch, she built it out completely and chose the color and everything. And she was just amazing. I don't think that I could have asked for a better book designer. So if you're ever in need of an illustrator, Google Caitlin Martin. She's based in Chicago. She does amazing work and um, I'll be forever grateful to her. That's awesome. That's super cool. 
So what is your biggest piece of advice for any aspiring novelist? I think so often writers judge themselves, or at least I know I judge myself based on the success of other writers. And I think that each writer needs to define what success means to them and needs to find joy in the art of writing and having that be enough. Um, I know that sounds like really depressing and despondent, and I don't mean it that way, but really writing is the gift. Writing is the ceremony. I know that's a quote from someone, I can't remember who, but, um, you know, writing has to be enough. If you're writing to be known, if you're writing to be seen, um, I think that you might be left wanting a little bit because writing doesn't, not just writing, being published doesn't give back anything that you feel that's been taken from you or that's been missing from your life. It doesn't make everyone who doubted you wrong and make you right. It doesn't make your old boyfriends come back to you. And it definitely doesn't make you friends in most, um, in most cases. But writing is the gift that you do for yourself, that you give to yourself. So always try to find the joy in what you're writing, even if you're the only person that sees it. I like that. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and what are some of your favorite resources for would-be writers? Um, I would definitely suggest going on Submittable and getting an account. I think it's submittable.com and you can search for different calls for submissions based on approaching deadlines, based on entrance fees or reading fees, or based on theme. Um, one of the best things you can do for yourself as a writer is to submit your work for other people to read for publication. Um, that is one of the best resources I can give. Love that. I Well, it's so funny that you say it's one of the best resources you can give because you you do like workshops and stuff for writers. Yes, I do. <laughs> I haven't in um, yourself right now. <laughs> I haven't in a while, but I'm trying to bring it back, trying to find the time to resume the writing workshops, which are always free. Um, I do do paid ones occasionally that are more in depth, that are for people who are really looking to generate work and get stuff out there. But there are so many free resources like LitHub or, um, you know, Submittable, like I said, or Poets and Writers Magazine. I believe they have a subscription, but um, they do have some free content, you know, and just reading. Reading is the best resource that's out there. The only way you become a better writer is by reading and reading stuff that you wouldn't normally read. I'm not big into mysteries, but you learn so much about craft in mysteries. So they're worth giving a read for sure. And you said that you are working on your next book, but do you have anything else coming up for you in the writing world? Um, so I've actually transitioned into a different lane with writing recently, and I am now um, an ordained minister and officiant. So the writing that I've been doing in tandem with my second book is actually writing love stories for couples who have hired me to officiate their weddings. I love it. It's so cool. I think that's how many have you done? I've only done two so far, but I've really enjoyed getting to know these couples, sort of getting to hear um, their side of their love story and sort of bringing that together, finding poems and songs and quotes that match the couple. It's really been more fun than I thought it would be. I absolutely love it. That's so great. That would make a great book too. <laughs> For real though. And let me tell you something. My When my cousin got married, they kind of just randomly picked an officiant because they were not like religious or part of a church or anything like that. So they just sort of went online and found this 
absolutely banana pants woman. And it was memorable. It was memorable for sure. But also, it was one of the very strangest experiences of my life. So I just the fact that you are like, I want to get to know them. And I want to write something that's really personal to them. And I want to write their love story. I'm like, you get it, girl, because that is so much better than what like most of these people, these some of these just absolutely banana pants people are doing out there. So <laughs> I think you're going to be excellent at this. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, we will be tagging Lauren in the show notes, uh, in the podcast description on our social media. So you guys can give her a follow. Um, if you want to follow along for some of her workshops or see what she's doing next. Um, and of course we'll tag those resources, um, and list those resources in the show notes as well. Um, but Lauren, thank you so very much for joining us today. Um, it is now time to talk about what is bringing us joy this week. So Lauren, what is making you happy? Ladies, thank you so much for having me. Honestly, being on this podcast just like made my week. (laughs) That's what's bringing me joy. (laughs) But also what's bringing me joy is all the couples who have entrusted me with an important day in their lives and relationships and really trying to explore another way that I can use my love of writing to translate into a really happy moment for someone else. Love it. Yeah, that's it's that's really special that you're able to do that. It was special. Oh, I, that. I was. Well, I, love, I love a good. I love crying at a good wedding. It's, it's <laughs> just the best. Steffi, what's bringing you joy? Um. So yesterday I was at my desk eating lunch, minding my own business, uh, and you sent me a Facebook post from our local thrift store. Thrift store. Um, of this Singer brand, uh, like antique sewing box that they had, they had gotten in. And when I tell you, I fucking ran my ass over there, like sprinted my ass to that store to buy this antique sewing box. And it is beautiful. And I, she, I cleaned her up and, you know, gave her some little wood polish and she looks beautiful. And I just need to like figure out how I want to organize my like needlework stuff in her. Oh my goodness. She's beautiful. I love her. She's making me so happy this week. Oh my God. I <laughs> can't so wait to see it. it. It's, it's very so cool. Gorge. It's really cool. It's like, it like accordions out. It's so cool. And like, it's something that my mother would have really loved. Like it, if we'd been out shopping together, we would have fought over it a little bit. Like, oh, I love that. So, cool. Cool. so yeah, I just have to decide like, cause I don't have a craft room. I don't have like a space in my house. That's like just a dedicated craft room or anything. So I have to decide, I think I'm going to keep it in my bedroom and like keep some of like my crochet and my like embroidery stuff up there, even though I could definitely put like some of my other like sewing stuff in it if I kept it in my office, but just got to like organize it just right. So very, very excited about it. It's like an interesting height too. So it's like, oh yeah, it is like, an, it, it, is, it really is. It's like a, I don't know. It's like, per, cause it put, it'll fit like under my bedroom window, like kind of perfectly. So yeah. So I guess if you had like a sitting chair, maybe that you would go next to that. Yeah. It kind of really would sure, like actually, where you would originally like, put it perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I think it definitely was probably meant to like sit next to like an armchair. Cause yeah, like I said, I'm, yeah, it is kind of like just the right height to like reach down and open up and like get, you know, your needles or your thread or like whatever out of it. So I don't know. It's lovely. And it's got uh, lots of options for keeping me a little bit more organized and also looking very, very cute. So, you know, we love it. We love to see it. Megan, uh, what's what's making you happy? Um, I have a new refrigerator. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love it's it. Amazing. So... Over the summer, my husband went on a work trip, and while he was gone, the our refrigerator started making noises, like a low whirring sound that was really loud. And I told him, and he said, okay, whatever, and he came back home, and it stopped doing it. <laughs> and it didn't do it again for six months. Um, and then it started doing it again right probably while we were gone at Christmas, and then the whole like week after that, it did it <laughs> when we were at home. 
And uh, and my husband was immediately like, let's go look at refrigerators. Because uh, he finally believed me now that he was there to hear it make the noise. Um, mm. Love so that we body. went. Yeah. It's, it's how it works. See, it's, it's like a man thing. I don't know. Um, so we got this new fridge. It's a counter depth fridge. So it's not as big technically as our old one, but it's like a four door situation and it's a, a 70, 30 or 60, 40 split. I am loving that. The doors are bigger and the other side is a little bit smaller. Um, but the top is a fridge and then the bottom, the big door is a freezer. And then the little door on the bottom is a flex. So you can, it can be a freezer. It can be like a cheese thing, which is basically what it is right now. Um, or it can be like a wine or beer fridge. And it has like racks that you can flip back and forth, whether if you want to put wine bottles in that like, they won't roll around. Um, so it's like, I'm in love with it right now. Does it have one of those things where you can see what's inside? No, it does not have that. Well, who needs that anyway? Like you don't I know. Mean, what, I think that's who doesn't dumb. know what's in their fridge? I mean, come on. Just open your fridge. I mean, but, but also like Steffi doesn't know what's in her fridge. I can guarantee you right now that she doesn't know. Shh. <laughs> I have a decent idea of what's in. My, it's only. <laughs> you have a general lay of the land. Been There's food in there. Today. Thank you, Megan. My toddler doesn't know what's in the fridge because she'll just be like, now she's like figured out that she can just be like, Mama, open, open fridge. I want, I need to find a snack. I want to peruse what's in there. Yeah, she literally, uh, she'll like make us open the fridge so she can just stand there and then like gaze around. And then sometimes she'll like point at something. She'll be like, I want that. And sometimes it's like a thing that she can eat, like uh, just like a snack. And sometimes I'm like, that's, that's mayonnaise. You can't. Yeah. No. We're not just going to eat that. It's like, the problem is that I live, she's the same thing in the pantry. Yeah. I live with three people who don't like move anything when they're looking for stuff. They just like peruse what's the first layer in front of them. So I need as few layers as possible. Yeah. So the, the, the shallower fridge has made it a lot easier for now at least. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we'll be able to like maybe redo our kitchen soon like maybe this year or something and uh, so i told megan i was like okay you take this fridge for a test run and then you tell me how you like it and maybe we'll buy that when we upgrade the kitchen so oh my god yes do it god knows alex would think it's too small i bet you it's fine it's whatever (laughs) god bless you got another one in the the garage it's fine it's fine (laughs) so uh you know speaking of things we might be doing this year uh, next week, we're going to be talking about goals. Yeah, you can find out why I have a hard time with them. And also, let's just, let's just get to talk all about it, guys. Just come on back. Uh, so until then, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at IRSI Podcast. You can also send us an email at I'd rather stay in podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Bye. <laughs>